Thank you so much, Neil. That was a long reading, and you read that beautifully. Um, it, it, seems, it seemed quite strange this morning we had, as Patrick mentioned earlier, some guests from Pakistan who were over here, and it seemed quite weird uh, me standing up and speaking on the topic of persecution, having uh, never faced anything uh, like... Um, well, probably like they have in their day-to-day life, and many Christians speak or experience around uh, the world. But I do think as we go through this wonderful passage that there is so much that we can uh, learn from it. And not trying to be a sort of uh, lower the tone or anything, but I thought I'd want to start this really serious topic with a slightly frivolous joke. There is a slight point to it. And it's about a 10-year-old boy who was a massive fan of tractors. There we go. He lived in the countryside and he loved watching the farmers uh, ploughing their fields and planting crops and harvesting them, driving their tractors around. His room was full of tractor uh, posters on the wall. He had toy tractors on all his shelves. One day he was out playing in his garden and a neighbouring farmer drove into the field next to his home with a brand new tractor. The farmer was really busy going up and down the field, uh, planting seeds, and the boy was frantically running over, waving to ask him for the driver to stop and come over to him. Eventually, the busy farmer noticed him and stopped his tractor and got over just to see what was happening, see if everything was all right. And the boy said, oh, please, 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 let me have a go on your tractor. And the farmer was rushed. He was running behind. He didn't have that much time left to plant his crops, so he turned to the boy and says, I don't have time for you to keep pestering me. You can't have a go in my tractor. And the farmer stormed off. And then the little boy stormed off too. He ran up to his room really upset. He ripped all his tractor posters off the wall and threw them out the window. He threw all his toys in the bin. And then he started taking a deep breath in in the middle of his room. He ran to his window, opened it, breathed out. He closed his window, ran back to the middle of his room, breathed in again, and started doing this over and over and over again. His mum heard the commotion and came up and was watching him, thinking, what, what, what's going on here? Eventually got the little boy to stop and explain what had happened. And the mum said, oh, I'm really sorry that the farmer said that to you, but, but, but why are you breathing in in the middle of your room and blowing out of the window? And the little boy turned to her and said, well, isn't it obvious I don't like tractors anymore? I'm an ex-tractor fan. I'm really sorry. Um, that's, a, that's a really bad joke. That's a really bad joke. Um, it, it, it is slightly linked with what we're talking about tonight. Um, if you think about it in the cold light of day, imagine it's a true story. The reaction of the boy to the bad comment that he had was a total overreaction, wasn't it? One comment from... Uh, a farmer has made him totally throw all his toys literally um, out. He's ripped the posters off the wall and he's not going there again. A slight leap, but I wonder if that's often what many of us do after we've had bad experiences of sharing our Christian faith. We don't get the response we want from people. And so instead of keeping going and keep asking to maybe get on that tractor. We start taking our posters down. We don't let people know how much we love Jesus, that we're followers of him. 
and we start literally taking um, the, the Christian toys off our shelf and packing them away, hiding them away, and changing the way we think about going about and letting people know about this awesome God that we love and worship. Tonight we're looking at, and we're continuing in that wonderful um, book of Acts we heard uh, Neil uh, read to us from Acts 5. And just to set context for this reading, up until now, the church has generally, since the ascension of Jesus, has been, uh, things have been going really, really well. The Holy Spirit's come, there's been healing, there's been miracles, the church has been growing um, exponentially, the Lord's been adding to their number daily, those who have been saved, and uh, this reading started with the, uh, the, the leaders, the rulers of the Jewish council being jealous because of the number of people that were coming to trust and follow in Jesus. We'd had, at the beginning of chapter 4, we'd had two of the apostles being told and warned by um, the rulers not to speak in the name of Jesus, um, but that's the only sort of negative thing that's really happened in church of, times of the church growing. And then tonight, this is where persecution and trouble really hits. And we need to, I think there's three things I want to pick out tonight. I probably could do a mini sermon series on that passage because there's so much in there. But there's three things I want to pick out because it's crucial to what's going to happen to this church when opposition and people try and like really prevent the apostles from declaring and telling people about Jesus. And there's three things that they really knew and I think they can help us today as well be people that are more confident in sharing and in telling people about Jesus. So uh, the first uh, thing I want to say is that the apostles knew that no place can stop God. No matter where the apostles found themselves, they knew that God was with them. The apostles had been speaking publicly in the synagogues, the place traditionally where God's presence was said to reside, but they'd also been doing healings, uh, and meeting out in the streets and meeting in people's homes. Uh, they knew that God was not just limited to the temple anymore. But here they find themselves, all the apostles rested now, in the darkest place, in a prison. And it's here where we get the first uh, post-ascension of Jesus appearance of an angel. An angel comes to them in the darkest of uh, places. God was strongly with them in that difficult place that they had found themselves. And I just want to look as well at what the angel says to them when the angel is with them in that prison, in that dark place where they did not want to be. He says this, verse 20, hopefully it's coming up on the screen. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. In that dark place, um, or after they've been in that dark place, the angel was saying, look, don't stay in the dark places. Continue to go. Continue to tell people about this way of life. Tell people about what Jesus has done for you. Live it out. I love the way the angel says this new life. The way the angel describes it. The word Christian hasn't even been invented yet. That doesn't come about till later on. What the angel says about believing in Jesus is a new way of life. It's not just an optional add-on. It's a way of life. Go, stand, and tell people about it. God has made a difference. Go and do it. It's wonderful when we can gather together on a Sunday and worship. You sense God moving. I did tonight earlier during when we were worshiping and when we were praying. 
It's wonderful that we can gather together and worship and experience God as a community. And the church has been doing that since its birth back those thousands of years ago that we've just been looking into today. But God's presence is not limited to when we gather. It is in all the places of the world and all places where you may find yourselves. God's power and God is with you in all those places. In prisons, like we heard, but also in workplaces, in schools, in our homes, wherever. I want to read you some uh, um, some verses from the beautiful psalm of David, Psalm 139. Just to really emphasize this point, David says this, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. David had that confidence and the apostles had that confidence as well that God was going to be with them no matter where they found themselves. And we should have that confidence too. So, no place can stop God. The second thing we saw uh, happening in this passage is that no people, no person can stop God. Hopefully there's another slide coming up with a wonderful picture on there we go. The picture for the teacher um, is because I'm about to tell a story of when I was back at school. A long time ago, I was in secondary school. And uh, I remember this instant when I got unf- very unfairly shouted at by a teacher. Has anybody ever been in that? Not necessarily by a teacher, but felt they'd been really like, shouted at. or You've done the right thing, but got in trouble for it. Okay, there are a few of you. Okay, good. You must have much better teachers than me. Anyway, I went to this a long time ago. I think it was in year nine or year ten, and I had the best uh, teacher in the school, as luckily as my form tutor. Uh, she really was the best teacher in the school. Her name was uh, Mrs. Farrett, and she was absolutely wonderful. She sent um, everybody in her form tutor Christmas cards, even in like two or three years after we left the school. How amazing is that with little notes in them um, telling us that she was still like thinking of us and hoping that we were doing well and all those sorts of things. Anyway, she was head of science and we were in there for um, uh, registration one morning and she asked me to stay, but she asked what lesson I had next. And I said, oh, I've got science next. Unfortunately, I didn't have it with her. I had it with another guy um, called Mr. McCarthy who, uh, I said, he's not, I can't watch this one, but I did apologise online said this story this morning if he's watching sorry Mr McCarthy but nobody really liked him he was not a very good teacher um, he, he was quite he was quite grumpy and she said well uh, can you just if you just do this task for me then you go to the lesson and if you explain to him that you were doing it for me because I'm head of science it will be okay so I did this task for I can't even remember what the task was but it took me about 10 or 15 minutes and then uh, I walked uh, around to my science lesson, I knocked on the door, uh, waited for him to say, come, I went in, and I said, I'm sorry I'm late, sir, but, and then he interrupted me, he says, how dare you turn up 10 minutes late for my lesson? That's outrageous. Get out, boy, out. And I said, but sir, I don't want to hear your excuses. Get out. So I turned around and went out of the classroom. I'd never been sent out of a classroom before, 
Um, but I, uh, so I was a little bit sort of confused as to what's going on. But I also had in the back of my mind that actually I needn't worry about this person shouting at me because Mrs. Farrow would come to the rescue. And uh, she did come to the rescue. About 10 minutes later, a very embarrassed Mr. McCarthy came out of the room with his head down and just turned and goes, Oh, Richard, why didn't you tell me? And I just simply replied, well, sir, I did try, but you told me to get out. Anyway, the point of the story is I was getting in trouble for doing the right thing, but I had confidence that a higher authority would come and rescue me and would be with me. That is what is happening in this story with the apostles. And that is what we need to remember when we're facing opposition from people. God has more authority. He is over and above. And he can rescue. In the midst of sort of all these um, uh, leaders trying to tell the apostles to stop telling people about Jesus, they're threatening to kill them. We have this wonderful little sort of uh, conversation happen. Uh, the apostles are sent out while they sort of decide what to do with them. And this guy called uh, Gamaliel um, speaks up. Um, interesting, very interesting about this guy, Gamaliel, is he's a leader of, he was a leader of, uh, he's a well-respected guy. There's stuff written about him outside of the Bible. He was sort of a leader of a more um, liberal side of um, the Jewish life. And he was kind of like a, um, let's be really, really holy people and um, live really, really holy, holy people. Let's not push and force our ideas on other people. Kind of like had this laissez-faire attitude of people that didn't do the right thing, saying that God will punish them all in the end. And it's really interesting, actually, Paul learned quite a bit from him, but then took a very hard line. Saul, Paul, who later comes quite crucial in Acts, but then took more, more hard line. But Gamaliel taught um, Paul for quite a while. But Gamaliel is not a follower of, um, of Christ at all, and he uh, never was as far as we know. Anyway, he says this to the leaders that, that want, to, want to have all the apostles killed. He says, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men you will only find yourselves fighting against God. That is a truth that he spoke coming from an unlikely source that we need to take hold of. If we are called to go and do something, and if it's of God, nothing is going to stop it. Because God is bigger and more powerful and he holds more authority than any earthly person we might meet. One other quick thing I want to say about this is that is good advice. It's from God. Nobody's going to be able to stop them. But this is not a sort of a, a rule we need to apply in every single situation, which is what he and or his school of thought was. You know, as Christians, we're called to fight and stand up for what is right and good. This is not an excuse for us to see something that's wrong and just turn a blind eye or saying, oh, that's fair because it's not from God. Because actually, if we do that, we can let evil prosper. That's not what this is saying, but actually it's just saying, I want us to remember that if God's on it, nobody's going to stop it. So Gamaliel persuades them not to have all the apostles put to death. 
But there's still one more thing the Sanhedrin and the rulers do. They try one more deterrent. So they've known, the apostles know that no place can stop them and no people can stop them. But the Sanhedrin inflict pain on them. And the apostles learn that no pain can stop God either. It happens really, really quickly in the reading, so you might have missed it. But towards the end of the reading, uh, we hear, they don't decide to kill them, so they have them flogged and then released. All the disciples, all the apostles, sorry, are flogged. It doesn't say um, the exact punishment, but because it doesn't say it was any different, it was probably the standard 40 lashes minus one. So that's 39 lashes each with a long whip. Probably not the cat of nine tails, just a standard flogging. But a standard flogging is really, really, really painful. Really painful. They used it to punish people and as a public deterrent. So every single one of them gets 39 lashes and told not to speak in the name of Jesus. How did the apostles respond to it? Let's put this up. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And also, let me continue just so you get the points. They left rejoicing but they also don't listen to that Sanhedrin either. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They responded with joy. They responded to pain with joy. I think this is one of the most, uh, and it's not just here, it's one of the most hardest teachings I think there is in Scripture. And I just want to, I'm going to read a few more other Bible passages that, that talk about this, just so you know it is a teaching in Scripture. James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 5 says this, verses 3 and 5. Paul says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 4.13 says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And there's many, many other Bible passages as well that talk about finding joy in suffering. When we suffer, there's a question that I think most people ask. I certainly do, and I'm sure many of you do, which is, why, God, is this happening to me? Now, sometimes the pain and the suffering isn't happening because of God. It's happening because we live in a messed up and wrong world. So I'm not saying that we should need to find joy in all kinds of suffering. But I think Bible is quite clear, and it makes us ask a different question. So why God is happening to me is a good question to ask, particularly if that's what's on your heart, and see what God says. But I think... Another really good question to ask is, is this suffering happening 
because I'm being faithful to God? If the answer to that question is yes, the Bible is really clear that we are supposed to find joy in that. So how did the apostles have joy in their mindset? Well, they go straight. In that verse it says they they, uh, were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That's Jesus. The apostles could find joy in it because they witnessed and were confident in the victory of Jesus. They'd seen Jesus' pain and suffering. They'd seen him flogged worse than they had been, beaten, spat upon, crucified, nailed to a cross. They'd seen all that pain and that suffering. But they had also seen Jesus come out the other side seen him pass through that pain, that suffering and death and they had seen a resurrected, risen Lord Jesus alive, healthy, well, different in an eternal body and they knew that nothing that happened to them was more powerful than what they had seen and witnessed happen in Jesus and Jesus had said to them if you follow after me and trust in me that will happen to you it's one of the reasons why I think we can trust fully the words of scripture and that the church is based on not just myth or things that we thought happened but that the apostles really did witness it because it transformed them from being weak people that ran away to being people that could rejoice for suffering in Jesus name because they knew what they had seen and it gave them confidence to go through all things Our prayer for us as we read the scripture and as we have it unpacked is that we can have that same confidence that the apostles had in who Jesus was. That we can know that nothing that we experience has more authority and power than Jesus. Sort of the strap line for this talk, if you don't go away from anything else, I want you to remember this sort of slightly rhyming line. If God says go, It's stronger than any no that you will come across. God's call to go is stronger than any no. If you don't want to be in a place, God is in that place ahead of you, before you, and can meet you in that place. If you're scared of a person or a conversation or not telling you, God is over and above that person. He has more authority. Go and speak in God's name to them. Don't be afraid. And if you suffer for the name of Jesus, just remember that he can transform our suffering into joy. And as you think and remember that, I hope that you can find joy as well. God's call to grow, to go, is stronger than any no you will face. So where is God calling you to go? Who is God calling you to speak to? or not give in to? And what pain do you need to go through to follow God's call on your life? 